When we hear the word retreat, we envision serenity and calmness, really relaxing environment with lots of beaches and definitely lots of naps. This is definitely not that. It's the furthest thing from that. And I also don't want you to think of it as Tough Mudder Spiritual Edition. Hello and welcome to Conscious Business. Thanks for tuning in. This is your host, Julie Zuzak. Today, I'm going to share some very personal lessons that I received recently. They happened on my annual Vipassana retreat. Now, as always, I showed up to meditate like I do every year, but boy, was I in for a surprise this year. I had, uh, let's say, a different experience than I typically do, and this experience taught me a lot about myself, about others, about cooking, and believe it or not, it was a great reminder about leadership. So before I move on, let's go through a really quick definition of what Vipassana actually is. I know some of you have heard about it. I know some of you have actually been on a retreat. We've talked about this before, and some of you are signed up, and you'll be going very soon. So Vipassana is, by definition, it means to see things as they really are. It is a meditation technique that was rediscovered by Buddha more than 2,500 years ago. Now, he used this specific technique to achieve enlightenment in his lifetime. Now, it's different than any other meditation technique that's taught. There's so many different types of meditation, just like yoga, so many different styles and techniques. And a lot of meditation techniques, they try to get you to clear your mind, to get rid of all of your thoughts, or you're taught to focus on your breathing. So you either notice your breathing going in and out, or you use your breathing, your pranayama, to really get your mind to calm down. Because, you know, we always say your breath is that link between the conscious and the unconscious state. But Vipassana has nothing to do with any of these other techniques. It's something completely unique on its own. It involves a body scan. And what you do is you focus with your eyes closed on different areas of the body and you try to feel for subtle sensations on the skin. So to properly learn this Vipassana technique, you need to attend a 10-day residential course. Now, over the years, I've seen this technique also being taught through other shorter courses, but for me to really learn it properly, I wanted to learn it in its purest form, the way that it was originally designed and taught, which is why I opted for the 10-day course. So here's a look at what you're going to learn today. First off, I want to address some of the most common questions that I hear about Vipassana and things that you should know before you consider taking the plunge. In the second segment, I'm going to explain why this year was a different experience for me and how I was challenged. And then in the last segment, I'm going to explain the biggest leadership lessons that came out of the week, how it was humbling and how it was a great reminder that I've come oh so far, but have so far yet to go. So get out of your head, into your heart, and let's dive right in, shall we? So 
So I want to start off by sharing some of the most important things that you should know about a Vipassana course. And I'm going to just pause right here and say out loud, I really need to start calling this a course and not a retreat because retreats, let's be honest, are, you know, relaxing and they are vacation worthy. And a Vipassana course is not. <laughs> As the founder, Goenkaji, explains, he likens the course to doing brain surgery on yourself. It's intense, it's serious, and it's a lot of work. It is not ponies and roses. There's no frolicking on the beach and coming back with a suntan. With the word retreat, we sometimes think serenity, calmness, relaxation, reconnection, you know, deep conversations, naps. This is not that. So here's a list of five really important things that you should know about a Vipassana course. Number one, your first course is a full mandatory 10 days. And actually, it's 10 full days while you're there, plus the two travel days on either side. So technically, it's 12 days. So for example, at our retreat center here in Ontario, the course starts on a Wednesday, and then you return on Sunday of the following week. So yeah, it's a big time commitment, right? Your first course needs to be the full 10 days. And then after you've done that first course, then you can actually apply for shorter ones. Like they do three-day courses here, I know in Ontario, and also do one-day courses in the city. So it's worth noting there are other meditation courses that you can go on. There's other silent retreats that you can go on that aren't you know, quote unquote, the formal Vipassana style. But if you want to do uh, this type of retreat and you want to learn in its purest form, then you do have to commit to the full 10 days. All right. So that is the first thing that I really want you to know is you go for your first time. It's the full 10 days. The second thing that you should know is noble silence also known as no talking. So for about nine of the 10 days, you take a vow of silence, which means no speaking, no eye contact, no sign language, no hand gesturing, no motioning. So if you're making a cup of tea and you spill the milk all over someone else, you can't say I'm sorry or look at them and frown. You just kind of have to clean up your mess and keep moving. Now, if you have questions during the course, either about the meditation technique that you're learning or about your facilities where you're staying, you can talk to either the teacher or the course manager. So you won't be totally stuck. If you need help with something, you can ask someone who's running the course, but you're not going to be interacting or talking to the other students. Now, for me, I have to say, being a strong introvert, this whole no talking thing is like complete heaven to be in total silence. You know, because for me, every conversation that I have is a withdrawal from my energy bank. But for my highly extroverted friends who get really energized from conversations and from interacting with people, well, this can be a really big challenge for them. And sometimes people say they really feel like their energy is dipping low without having that human contact or interaction. All right. So that's the second really important thing to know is no speaking. The third thing that you should really know is that, yes, we eat vegetarian food for 10 days straight. And no, there is not a food truck in the parking lot that you can just drop into and grab a burger. You're committing to Sheila, which is 
uh, similar to ahimsa in Sanskrit, which means nonviolence. So you're not eating any animals or animal products. It also means no killing of mosquitoes, which is kind of a big thing in Ontario in the summertime. So this no meat thing, I know it can be a big deal for some people if you're not used to it. I know years ago when I was actually on a retreat in Mexico, I was running a retreat and this didn't happen with my group, but in one of the other groups that was there, there was a guy who was so devastated by the healthy vegetarian food that he actually, on I think about day three, he hopped in a kayak and he paddled over to the nearest town to get a steak and fries. And then he came back to the retreat and finished it off. But I just want to say this because I know this is a big deal for some people and it's just good to know, right? To mentally prepare before you're there. So there's no surprises. So for me, I've been vegetarian for about 25 years. So I love this kind of uh, eating, but hey, it's not for everyone. So that's the third really important thing I want you to know is that it's veggie food the entire time. Uh, For your first course, you get breakfast and lunch, and then the dinner is actually just fruit and tea. And then when you are returning as a student for subsequent courses, they actually request that you abstain from taking dinner. So that means you eat your lunch around 11, and then you fast from noon until the following morning. So that's important to know too. Okay, are you turned off yet? (laughs) I know this is a lot of information. Two more things. The next thing, the fourth thing to know is that, ooh, this is a big one too. You wake up at 4 o'clock a.m. and then the day finishes at 9.30. So it is a fairly uh, jam-packed day, a lot of meditation, a lot of activities, and you meditate for up to 10 hours a day. Now the meditation is broken up into one-hour sittings. A few of them are slightly longer than an hour, but for the most part, they're about an hour, and then you stand up, you take breaks, you walk around, stretch your legs. So yeah, the days are long, they're structured, and you meditate a lot. But no, you're not expected to sit for, you know, 12 hours on your own and just meditate in silence, right? You need to ease your body into this. And this leads us to the last thing, number five. Now, it's going to make number five no coffee, because I know that's a tough one for a lot of people. They don't have, well, again, speaking for our retreat center here in Ontario, they're trying to withdraw you from any addictions that you might have. And let's be real, coffee's an addiction. So what they do here in Ontario is they serve <clears throat> instant coffee. Now, I don't know if you consider that still coffee, but but it is some form of coffee derivative or remnant, but you don't actually get freshly brewed coffee. And again, there is no Starbucks in the parking lot where you can run out and grab a latte and come back. This is a big deal. I know one of my friends, T, when she went, that was one of her, uh, she had a great experience, but that was one of her uh, most difficult challenges of the course was not having her daily coffee. However, she did come back and tattoo the word equanimity on her arm, which is pretty incredible. So she had a great experience, but the no coffee thing was a big deal for her. But I'm not going to count that as number five. I'm going to call that a runner up. But here's your actual number five is, this is a big one. You should know that a Vipassana course is actually free. There are no charges for the course. There's no charges for your food, for your accommodation. And this is really hard for people to understand. So I want to explain why, because some people get really suspicious about this. 
So the course is really quite intense. Like I said, they uh, call it kind of brain surgery that you're doing on yourself because you're bringing up old memories, right? And old patterns. When you do this type of deep work, your mind starts to race. It tries to find distractions. It tries to find excuses. You know, in our language, we talk about saboteurs, right? They're racing all the time to distract you from the things that you should be doing. So in this case, your saboteurs are distracting you from learning the technique and meditating diligently every day, which is why they take you off the grid. There's no internet. There's no Instagram. And you're not permitted to read, to journal, to exercise. So it's really brilliant by design. They strip out all the distractions and they want you to just focus on learning the technique. So let's say, for example, around day three, you're having a really rough day and you might be kind of agitated. You rock up for lunch and the food is mm, not quite to your liking. So your ego could get involved and use that as an excuse to start complaining. Well, what did I pay all this money for if this food isn't even really what I wanted? Don't they even understand what I need? And so your ego could start to find all these excuses to complain that you didn't like the food or the bed wasn't to your liking or the pillow wasn't quite right. Instead of being distracted by all of these things that you could potentially complain about, but instead, you're there for free, which gives you zero opportunities to complain. So, there isn't a charge for the course, and that's why. Now, if you do complete a course, and you are overcome with gratitude and appreciation, as I often am, then you're welcome to make a donation to cover off the costs of your course. But your donation isn't to pay to the course that you just had. Your donation is meant to cover the costs of a future student who will come and take a course. So yeah, there's lots of rules, including uh, also no exercise, no yoga, no group classes, no qigong, no reading, no journaling. And yeah, you're off the grid, no Instagram, no Wi-Fi, no phone access. Now, I gotta be honest, I am the last person in the world, I think, who loves following rules. However, these are a different type of rules. These are rules that are designed to really set you up for success, to strip out all the distractions so that you can really focus on meditating and meditating and, well, you guessed it, just meditating. They're designed to give you the best chance to focus, to learn this technique and make the most of your time there. Because let's face it, organizing to take 12 days out of your life, that's not easy. Plus all the ramp up time that you need to take care of things before you're gone. And then the integration time when you come back. So I share all these details because I want you to really have a full understanding of what this course, not retreat, what this course entails. Because I always like to be upfront and clear and I don't like any surprises. Now, I know that sometimes when I share all these details about this annual meditation course that I go to, some of my A-type friends, well, they can take it as a little bit of a challenge. I can see their hamster wheel just turning, their eyes racing, and it sounds really hard to them, and they can start to think, oh, I want to do it. You can see that their ego is activated just hearing how challenging this actually is, and then they want to start to do it for all the wrong reasons. So I want to manage your expectations here. 
You're not going to get a t-shirt at the end of this course. This is not Tough Mudder spiritual version. It's not meant to be a personal challenge. It's not meant to demonstrate your mental toughness or your resilience. It's designed to give you an opportunity to connect with yourself and to establish a meditation technique, a really powerful meditation technique. That's all. So if you're thinking of going, check in with yourself and see if you want to go for all the right reasons. So this was my fifth Vipassana course that I've actually taken. And this time it was a little bit different than the previous ones because this time I opted to volunteer. So as you can imagine, like I said before, this course is free. It's a nonprofit organization. And so everything that happens magically behind the scenes is by people who aren't being paid. So you can imagine there are a lot of volunteers that participate and give their time for free to make things run smoothly. There's a lot of angels over there that work tirelessly. A lot of things that happen behind the scenes. Now I've heard many people talk about their opportunity to serve the course over the years. I know some people do alternating years. So one year they'll come and sit the course as a student and then the next year they will serve the course and work in the kitchen. And I thought that sounded kind of interesting. So seeing as my previous four courses I had attended as a student, I figured I was long overdue to participate and volunteer to serve at the course in the kitchen. So I rock up to the kitchen imagining, you know, I would have the chance to chop a couple tomatoes here or there. And we sat down to have a meeting to outline everybody's roles. So important. I loved how organized this kitchen was run. So everyone has a specific role that they participate and handle for the course. So who was going to do what? So myself and one of the other male volunteers, Don, uh, were assigned the role of cooks, which is great because I love to cook, especially vegetarian food. Now, Regardless, we do have a bit of a family joke that I don't know how to cook, but I actually do know how to cook. Whether people actually like to eat the kind of food that I cook, well, that's a whole nother story. But bottom line, I do know how to cook. That was the most important thing. So saying yes to cooking for the course, well, that was easy, right? I mean, how hard is it going to be? The recipes are set. The food is ordered. The menu's the same course over course, so there's really no decisions to be made. And the couple who run the kitchen are going to be there watching over us the whole time. So really, how can we possibly screw this up? So after we were assigned our roles, one of the ladies, who volunteers quite a bit, she tries to go up for every single course, which is amazing. She came up to me and she said, Ooh, you're going to be cooking? Cooking's really stressful. I did it once. Are you sure you want to cook? And I thought to myself, yeah, of course I want to cook. It'll be fine. Then other people started to come up to me and say similar things. Ooh, oh, you're cooking, eh? Mm. So I started to wonder, you know, what exactly did I say yes to here? And why does everybody have this ominous response to the fact that I'm cooking? Well, I was about to find out. Now, I want to be crystal clear. There was absolutely no qualification that I have to get this role of cooking, it was all based on a casual answer that I had given earlier, which was, yes, 
I do like to cook. And out of all the people in the kitchen volunteering, I was one of the only ones that actually knew how to cook and did actually like cooking. So that was surely the only thing that qualified me for this role. But, you know, let's be honest, cooking for two people is different than cooking for a hundred. So we stepped up to the challenge and we did our absolute best. There was a couple of things that could have possibly gone really wrong and they didn't because we kind of were always there for each other. Don and I cooked for a hundred people for 10 days and it was an amazing experience. I truly could not have done it without him. He was so patient. He worked so hard. He never complained. He had the best attitude. Same with everyone else in the kitchen. It was extraordinary. And you know, there's so many parallels with cooking to running a business. The actual cooking wasn't that hard, but what made it challenging was every day that you had to get all the food ready at the same time. And there was a finite amount of time. And this is the thing, you're cooking recipes that, you know, you've never cooked before, so you don't really know how it goes. So it was really so similar to being an entrepreneur and running a business. The time constraints were really what made it be so challenging because the first day we got to read through the recipes, we made a plan, we divided up tasks, and we had a lot of time to think it through. But then as the days go on and on and on, you're even more rushed to get things done. And on top of this all, you still go to the meditation hall and you do at least three of the one hour meditations. So the days were long and it was a lot of work. And I have to say, I am so grateful. It was such an honor to be able to be behind the scenes, putting so much love and care into the food and making sure that everyone's special diets were accommodated to the best of our capability. And I got to tell you, I eat out a lot living in the city. Obviously, that's just how my life is. And I'm really embarrassed to say that I have never never spent any time thinking about who is back there in the kitchen making my food or what kind of day they're having or how much work it is. You know, I've never thought about that at any time. I just simply pick what I want off the menu and then it just shows up magically about 20 minutes later. So cooking for 100 people on that course, it was a privilege. It really was. I learned so much. And as one of the people said to me, during the week. It's not every day that you get to cook for 100 people. And the other cool thing was being in a brand new commercial kitchen. I mean, the previous courses that have been up there, we've had a different, smaller, tiny kitchen. And so this is a brand new building, all new appliances, stainless steel countertops, complex equipment that I've never even seen before, let alone knew how to use. And so shout out to Brian and to Day who run the kitchen. I want to send them so much love because they are so calm and so patient with our million and one questions that we asked during our training. And they have that kitchen so organized and seamless that really anyone could just step in for the 10 days and know exactly what to do. So this experience really renewed my love of cooking, especially for curry. So if you're coming over to my house in the next couple of weeks, you better believe you're going to have curry and it's most likely going to have a lot of coconut milk in it. You know, on this podcast, we talk about going outside of our comfort zone all the time. And well, for me, this was definitely cooking for a hundred was definitely outside my comfort zone. It's been a while since I've done something like this that was brand new on a really steep learning curve. 
It was kind of like Iron Chef spiritual version. Now, as with all experiences that we have outside of our comfort zone, there's always lessons that we get to take home. Now, the cool thing with this experience is that I realized how leadership applies to all areas of life, not just business. Working in a kitchen, it requires great leadership and it requires amazing teamwork. You know, having to know clearly what everybody's roles are so there aren't any duplication, so there isn't anything that gets left undone or forgotten. Who's going to make the brown rice? Who's going to measure the white rice? Who's going to soak the lentils? Oh my gosh. So everyone knew really clearly what their roles were. We also communicated really well. And now the student part of the retreat, obviously people take a vow of silence. In the kitchen, we talked as normal. And then when we would go into the meditation hall, then we would plug back into the silence machine. But while we were cooking, we were allowed to talk. Another thing we had was complete trust and continual support for each other all the time. It's so necessary. And, you know, the other important thing, you got to ask for help, which was a big lesson. And I'll talk a little bit more about that in a second. And so one of the things that I loved about being in the kitchen was sharing meals and hearing stories. I love hearing stories. Stories about the center, stories about other people who were on Vipassana course in other parts of the world, stories about previous courses here in Ontario. And I've heard lots of stories of people who didn't get along so well with others in the kitchen and what kind of an impact that had actually on the students which is pretty interesting. Apparently, once there were two people cooking together in the kitchen who didn't get along very well, and they had quite a bit of conflict during the course, and there were lots of students who were complaining about the food and also who had really bad indigestion. This was all as a result of the fact that, you know, when you're cooking, you put a lot of intention into the food. You can put a lot of positive intention and love and care into the food that you make, and if you have bad vibes, the exact opposite, and you're not getting along with people or you're feeling angry, then that gets consumed into the food and the way you make the food as well, right? If you're full of negativity and bad vibes, those are going to show up in the food, right? So I have four big lessons that I learned during the course, and I want to share them with you. So here we go. First off, lesson number one, as I said earlier, leadership. It's not just for business. Basically, whenever you get a group of people working together towards a common goal, you need great leadership. That's what helps you get there. Now, I really found myself having to self-manage in this situation because I always wanted to um, really lean in and find out about other people and see if I could get them to be even more engaged, check in to see if they were happy doing what they wanted to do, if they wanted to swap tasks. But I had to check myself here, right? Because this was not my place to make that decision. Uh, and so it's kind of distracting, really, when you can see people not really engaged or happy with what they're doing as part of the kitchen. It was a little bit hard for me, I have to confess. You know, I'm just wired to always think about engagement, about fulfillment and satisfaction. So it's hard for me to watch someone who's not happy doing what they do and not be able to 
get involved in making them happier, right? So I had to learn there's a time and a place for everything, and that was really mm, not my business. So lesson number one for me was the need for great leadership. It's everywhere, not just business. Lesson number two for me, quite simply, is gratitude for anyone, anywhere, whoever works in a kitchen, especially when you're cooking in large quantities. Oh my gosh. It's safe to say that I will never eat at a restaurant again without considering who cooked my meal and how much work was involved in preparing it. Even last night, we were at Fresh for dinner and I found myself just kind of like peering into the kitchen secretly to see who was in there and how hard they were working. So that's lesson number two, gratitude for kitchens and cooks, anyone involved in the kitchen, anywhere for the rest of my life. (laughs) Lesson number three. Now this was a recurring lesson, something that, uh, not that I haven't learned it yet, but there was a deepening to this lesson that, well, maybe you can relate to. The lesson was asking for help. Now, if you're like me and you've been taught your whole life to be independent and self-sufficient and hardworking, Asking for help, well, it doesn't always come easy. And so while I've made progress over the years, I'm not actually always the best at recognizing when I can ask for help. When I do recognize I need help, I'm good at asking for it, but I don't always recognize the opportunities when I do need to ask for help. So really, when we were getting food out for these uh, lunches and breakfasts, Everything has to go out at the same time, and it all has to be hot. So that was a lot for Don and I. And so, I don't know, somewhere maybe day three or four, we started to realize that we could actually ask for temporary help, like five or ten minutes from someone else in the kitchen, to help us get the dishes ready and the food out into the dining hall. Once we started to do that, that changed everything. That really was a game changer. And then every day we started to ask for more and more help. Here, you do the rice. You do the special meals. Can you do this? Can you do that? And then we had it all down to a fine science, I think, by, you know, like the last day. Isn't that the way it always goes? So lesson number three, ask for help. And more importantly, look for opportunities to ask for help all the time. Because let's be honest, everything is easier with help and people love to help, right? Number four, the fourth and final lesson for me was recognizing that, oh, so much goes on behind the scenes of any large company, event, organization. And sometimes, especially with a Vipassana course like this, we're so focused on ourselves and on our journey. And I know in the past, I've never taken time to really appreciate just how much work goes on behind the scenes to put something like that together to make sure that it runs smoothly. And, you know, they make sure that everyone is accommodated. We do the best to cook all the special meals that we need to. And, you know, in the past, when I showed up for lunch, I just instantly thought about "Mm, whether I'm going to like the food or not. I never spent any time thinking about, oh, who made this food? Where did this food magically come from? Who worked so hard to create all this food? So lesson number four, appreciate the behind the scenes work to make large organizations operational. Because when you stop and think about it, it is a lot of work. And this isn't just a retreat or a course. It's about business. It's about an organization. It's about an event, anything basically that you partake in. So there's so many lessons that I learned on this course around cooking, around leadership, around self-managing, around asking for help. And most importantly, I am truly grateful for everything that I learned about cooking. At the end of the day, everything 
tastes better with great leadership, doesn't it? Okay, it's time to start wrapping up this episode on leadership and cooking, cooking for 100. I want to leave you with a cute story. I was talking with one of the male students at the end of the course who didn't know that I was cooking for him all week long. And he was just raving about how awesome the food was. And he said for the first few days of the course, the food was so good that he really actually thought his wife was in the kitchen back there making all his food. And then on day five, we had the sag paneer, which is, I got to confess, my personal favorite dish too. And he said, at that point, I knew my wife wasn't actually in the kitchen because it was better than hers was. Ooh, So I don't know if he actually told her that story or not, but I thought it was kind of cute. So if there's anything to take away from this episode, remember to always take a moment and appreciate what is going on behind the scenes in your company, your organization, at an event, or even in the kitchen. Appreciate all the work that's being done instead of just focusing on your experience. I grew so much for this experience. So I am grateful today to Brian, to Prem, for his kitchen guidance, to Dawn, for tolerating my stubbornness, to everyone else in the kitchen and everyone else involved at the Vipassana Center here in Ontario. And I am so grateful to be part of this community. And remember, when you lean into your fear, there is always magic and maybe a couple new recipes on the other side.